Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the morning of Friday the 9th of March 1928, day 3 of the Ronald Griggs murder trial, and the streets are crowded in the town of Sale in East Gippsland, Victoria. There's only one topic of conversation and it boils down to one question. Ronald Jeeves Griggs, guilty or not guilty? I'm Michael Adams and this is the fifth and final part of the Forgotten Australian miniseries Thou Shalt Not Kill. Before closing arguments, Defence Barrister George Maxwell received the judge's permission to recall government pathologist Dr Crawford Mollison because he had a question about poisoning. Mr Maxwell asked Dr Mollison if he believed the 1859 book On Poisons in Relation to Medical Jurisprudence and Medicine by Alfred Swain Taylor was a volume he believed to be authoritative. Dr Mollison said it was. Mr Maxwell asked if he then had any reason to dispute a passage about fatal poisoning cases, which said sometimes symptoms appeared to abate, quote, which may lead to a deceptive hope of recovery, or by a recurrence of the symptoms to an erroneous assumption that a fresh quantity of poison had been administered. Dr Mollison replied, I see no reason to dissent from that opinion. Here, Mr Maxwell hoped, was more reasonable doubt about the argument Ronald had administered multiple doses, causing Ethel to sicken again on Sunday and Monday after it had appeared she'd started to get better. In his closing statement for the Crown, Mr Gurner dealt with the issue of the death sentence, telling the jury, quote, If the evidence is such as to bring you to the conclusion that the accused is guilty of the foul crime with which he is charged, then it is your duty, no matter how repulsive or repellent it may be, to say that he is guilty. Any jury member who didn't do this duty because it was a capital charge was being false to his oath and false in his duty 
to his country. Mr Gurner argued it had been proved beyond doubt that arsenic poisoning was the cause of Ethel Griggs's death. But he did now allow that there were three ways she could have swallowed the poison. Ronald Griggs had given it to her, she'd taken it herself, or homeochemist Francis Perry had put the arsenic into the prescribed stomach powders by accident. Mr Gurner dealt with the last first, saying it was nullified by two clear facts. One, Ethel had started vomiting on Saturday night, nearly 24 hours before the powders were prescribed to settle her stomach. Two, as Francis Perry had testified, his poisons were kept separately under lock and key from his other medicines. And further, the four packets he'd made up had a total weight of 16 grains, while 15.5 grains of arsenic had been found in Ethel, with Dr. Mollison testifying that she would have thrown up or absorbed even more of the poison. As for the suicide theory, Mr. Gurner said that Ethel wandering the paddock that day and locking herself in her room wasn't an indication that she'd wanted to do away with herself, but the understandable reaction of a young wife wanting to be alone because her husband was flaunting his lover around town. Had Ethel really tried to throw herself in the fire and then asked about the rope in the shed because she wanted to hang herself? These accounts had only been provided by Ronald, who had every reason to lie because he was trying to save his neck. And the accused was a liar, as demonstrated by his conduct and his initial interview with the police. Mr. Gurner said, quote, What is the position now? He comes here and says, Accept my word, accept my oath. You cannot do so. It would not be reasonable to ask you to do so. Ethel committing suicide didn't fit with the other evidence. In Tasmania, she'd visited not just her family, but Ronald's people too, Mr. Gurner. Does that look like the action of a woman who is only going back to her home for clothes and has decided never to live with her husband again? Citing her apparent fine health and spirits on the boat from Tasmania and in the car coming to Omeo, Mr. Gurner relied on a fairly narrow view of suicide. Quote, The conduct of a person about to take his or her life is distraught. Her conduct was altogether different. It was the conduct of a woman happy, jolly, and going back to see her husband. If Ethel had taken poison, Mr. Gurner argued, then why had she asked Mrs. Mitchell, why should I be so ill? Then, of course, Dr. Mollison had testified that Ethel had more than one dose of arsenic in her system. This made suicide highly improbable, particularly as she'd taken the last quantity just hours before her death when she was in bed, very sick and very weak. Mr. Gurner told the jury that Ethel Griggs's death wasn't an accident or a suicide. It was murder, committed by Ronald Griggs, who had motive, means, and opportunity. Quote, Arsenic may have been handed to Griggs by his paramour the night before his wife returned home. He admits he met her at her father's place the night before his wife returned. Griggs yesterday admitted that he was infatuated with Lottie Condon, and for her apparently, he would have risked anything. He has further admitted that if his wife started proceedings for divorce or separation, his career as a minister would have been ended. Mr. Gurner continued, You have the fact that he wanted Lottie Condon and wanted to continue with his church career. In addition, he had promised to marry Lottie long before his wife died. As reasonable and reasoning men, you can draw your own conclusions. His wife conveniently died, and if her body had not been exhumed, Griggs would have married Lottie Condon. Mr. Gurner had ensured that the jury had seen Lottie yesterday with their own eyes, and now he simply said of the alluring young woman, quote, Griggs wanted her, was determined to have her, and his wife 
had to be got rid of. While the issue of capital punishment hung over this case and trial, so did sensationalised newspaper coverage. Making his closing argument for the defence, barrister George Maxwell reminded the jury that the system presumed a man innocent. Even so, quote, a powerful section of the press has done everything possible to prejudice the public mind against Griggs and to inflame the community against him. Before he went into the witness box, he was practically condemned. Mr Maxwell told the jury he wasn't asking them to say that Ronald Griggs hadn't murdered Ethel. Quote, if you find Griggs not guilty, it is not necessarily to say that you are convinced and certain of his innocence. It simply means that you are not wholly satisfied of his guilt. You cannot find a man guilty on suspicion, but only on evidence which leaves no reasonable doubt as to the guilt of the man whose life you have to judge. Mr Maxwell said Ronald's conduct with Lottie was indefensible, but also proof that men of the cloth were as fallible as anyone else. Being an adulterer did not make him a murderer, but being married to one might drive a young wife to despair. Convinced of her husband's sins, Ethel had wanted a divorce. She was so distraught that she went to Tasmania, even though this left her husband in the realm of the other woman. In Tasmania, Mr Maxwell said, Ethel Griggs had displayed her ability to deceive. Quote, While this man was leading a double life in Omeo, Mrs Griggs was also leading a double life in this. Her mother was in absolute ignorance that this woman's heart must have been breaking while in Tasmania. Returning to Omeo, Ethel hadn't known what awaited. The letters they'd exchanged over the past six months had merely been polite and to keep up appearances. They hadn't mentioned Lottie. So would things now be different? Would Ronald now be a husband who honoured his marriage vows? Arriving in Omeo, sensing the truth that nothing had changed, Mr Maxwell said that Ethel might have taken arsenic she brought with her from Tasmania or acquired somewhere in Melbourne the day before. Maybe, he said, she'd only meant to make herself sick. Quote, Perhaps she thought that, were she in distress, she might rouse sympathy and revive old feelings. Mr Maxwell said there was no evidence of when the first dose was taken. That sickness on Saturday night might have been unrelated, and as late as Sunday night, she might have gulped down one big dose of arsenic. Mr Maxwell agreed if more than one dose was taken, it was likely she had been poisoned. But Dr Mollison had admitted a large dose might see some of the arsenic flow away to the large intestine while the rest remained in the stomach. Also, Dr. Mollison had said that the second large dose he proposed could only have been administered in something like a full cup of liquid, and this at a time when Ethel had only been capable of sips at best. Was the jury to believe that Ronald had forced a poisoned cup of tea down her throat in those last hours? Mr. Maxwell said, quote, Applying common sense to it, Dr. Mollison's evidence is reduced to nonsense. As for the suicidal motive, Mr. Maxwell asked the jury, quote, Why should she want to take her own life? Was it not the most humiliating position possible for a wife to be in? The only alternative was to go home to her people and tell them she had been supplanted by another woman. The disgrace of it. The humiliation of it. Mr. Maxwell argued that, apart from those initial understandable exceptions, Ronald had been candid and consistent in his story, even when detrimental to his own cause. He'd said that he'd made the tea, which the Crown said was the method of poisoning. Would a guilty man have admitted that? 
he could easily have claimed that Ethel had made the tea herself. Quote, The Crown would have you believe that the accused is not only a cold-blooded murderer, but a genius at manufacturing evidence against himself in order to give the appearance of candour. I ask you, gentlemen, is that common sense? Faced with Ethel's sickness, Ronald had gone to the doctor and sought help from Mrs. Mitchell. Quote, is that the kind of behaviour you would expect from a man who has administered a deadly dose of poison to his wife, even if he is an adulterer? As for the arsenic, would he really have given her such a big dose when two to three grains was enough to kill? Quote, Mrs. Griggs had enough to destroy a dozen people. Is it not more likely that some person other than Griggs took the arsenic in a full teaspoon to make sure that it would do its work? Mr. Maxwell said that other supposedly damaging evidence amounted to nothing. The phone conversation had been shown to be benign, and Ronald's letter to Ethel's mother showed him to be a hypocrite, but nothing more. Mr. Maxwell talked down the motive. A divorce had already been discussed and a separation enacted. Quote, Griggs and Lottie knew and must have known that they could come together by means apart from crime. Where, Mr. Maxwell asked, was the direct evidence. Direct evidence that Ronald had had arsenic in his possession. No doubt there was arsenic, but it could have come from Ethel herself or from Omeo's chemist, Francis Perry. Mr. Maxwell cast doubt on Francis Perry's claim to have made the prescription around 3pm when it had been established that Ronald hadn't come to him until about three hours later. If Mr. Perry couldn't remember that, what else might he have mistaken? Maybe he'd put his arsenic back in the wrong place and had doled it out in those prescription powders. Regarding the question of weight, the jury only had Francis Perry say so that he'd doled out the correct measure. Mr. Maxwell said that Mr. Gurner's suggestions that Lottie had been pregnant and that she'd given Ronald the arsenic were just malicious, unfounded, and showed that the prosecution was desperate to shore up its so-called motive. Mr. Maxwell summed up by referencing the biblical story of the woman about to be stoned by the rabble, the scribes, and the Pharisees. Jesus had saved her when he told these hypocrites, Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Ronald Griggs should likewise not be condemned for his adultery. The murder charge, it wasn't supported by evidence, and so the jury had to find him not guilty. The defence rested. Justice Irvine was now to sum up, but before he did so, he blasted a certain section of the press that had been commenting in the grossest manner with inflammatory headlines and inflammatory suggestions upon the evidence the jury has to deal with. Justice Irvine said that judges had limited powers to protect themselves and to protect juries, quote, but it seems to me that the time has come when a higher authority than this court ought to take action to prevent the roots of justice from being disturbed by this kind of irresponsible and inflammatory conduct. His remarks would lead to Melbourne's Labour Call newspaper telling readers, quote, there have been cases before, such as the Colin Ross one, on which the public mind was inflamed prior to the trial, but nothing has equaled the Omeo case. Here we have the detectives followed around by a pack of young men with horn-rimmed spectacles and notebooks, eager for what they call a scoop, while a score of star photographers are posted around to snap Griggs eating a boiled egg, Griggs drinking a glass of water, or Detective Sergeant Malfay blowing his nose. Labor suggested that the remedy here, quote, 
would be to give detectives and police generally authority to break the spectacles and smash the cameras of reporters and staff photographers on the warpath for a scoop. Justice Irvine didn't go that far, but he did hope that the jury could set aside anything prejudicial that had appeared in the press that may have reached them. On the question of Ethel Griggs committing suicide, Justice Irvine told the jury he believed it was, quote, strikingly improbable, and I think that you will come to that conclusion. Improbable, yes. Impossible, no. There was a chance that she'd gone home hoping things would be better, and finding they weren't had in one sad and mad moment swallowed arsenic she'd had with her. Justice Irvine said that Ethel had at times been hysterical and differences with her husband could have led to her wanting to take her own life. Justice Irvine said that Ronald Griggs' behaviour had been bad, but conversely, this might actually make his innocence more likely. Quote, I must impress upon you not to let the conduct of the accused have any effect upon your decision. You must also remember that the worse his treatment of his wife, the more motive she would have for suicide. On the other side of that coin, the judge said that the fact Ronald had been consistent in his story had to be measured against the fact that much of it couldn't be corroborated. Quote, A man who could be capable of committing such a crime as this would be capable of making a story which would consist in all parts of the truth except in the vital parts. Such a story, you would know, would be less liable to attack. But if that is so, that shows such a state of mind cold and calculating audacity which you are to judge whether the accused possesses. The judge reminded the jury that Ronald and Ethel had been alone from 9pm Saturday until 10am Monday. During that vital time, the court knew nothing except what it had been told by the accused. But if the jury had any reasonable doubt, Ronald Griggs was entitled to the benefit of it. They had to remember, quote, Evidence of motive is not evidence of crime. Justice Irvine asked the jury to retire to consider its verdict. Before they did so, the jury foreman had a question. What did 15 and a half grains of arsenic look like? The judge recalled government analyst Charles Anthony Taylor. Cat told the court that if you imagined two peas reduced to powder, then that would be the size of 15 and a half grains. Arsenic, he said, wasn't very soluble in cold water but it was 12 times more soluble in hot water, the temperature of an ordinary cup of tea. As we've heard, arsenic is white, so it'd be visible in black tea until it dissolved. But in tea with milk, it'd be pretty much undetectable. Throughout the trial, Ronald had not been asked whether Ethel took her tea white or black. Now, it was too late to put the question to him or to anyone else who might have known. The jury retired at 3.40pm. They re-emerged at 7.48, asking that Edna White's evidence be read in full. It was, and five minutes later, they resumed their deliberation. The jury was back at 9.32. The foreman said they couldn't reach a verdict. Justice Irvine refused to discharge them. He wanted them to go back to their shared balcony at the Star Hotel and reflect on the case overnight. The following morning, Saturday the 10th of March, the jury at 9.30 told the judge they wanted a little more time. 45 minutes later, they were ready, and there was a scramble for seats in the public gallery. The foreman told the judge, quote, 
It is impossible for us to reach a unanimous decision. It is absolutely hopeless. We have reconsidered the matter this morning and we have come to a dead end absolutely. The judge asked if there was any evidence they needed to hear again or any witness they wanted to question through him. The jury foreman said no, it wouldn't make any difference. Justice Irvine asked, are you all of that opinion? All 12 members of the jury were. While they were all agreed that they were deadlocked, it had later be revealed that 10 of these men had wanted to convict Ronald and send him to the gallows. Just two were in favour of acquittal, yet it only took one. Justice Irvine discharged the jury. Ronald Jeeves Griggs was remanded to stand trial again, this time in Melbourne. The accused spent the next five weeks in Pentridge Prison. On Tuesday the 17th of April, from early in the morning, hundreds of men and women queued up outside Melbourne Criminal Court in Lonsdale Street. According to Truth, there was pandemonium when the doors opened. Quote, in the rush for the gallery, it was shown that when it comes to a determination to secure a front seat at a famous trial, the age of chivalry is stone dead. Young men and old men adopted the tactics of football ruckmen to make their way through a press of avidly curious women folk. They used their elbows and shoulders indiscriminately and women retaliated with punches and smacks. Some of Melbourne's privileged people didn't have to go through this ordeal to gain easy access and the best views. Seldom used side galleries were opened to those with friends in high places, including a notable actress and several society women. The second trial of Ronald Jeeves Griggs for the murder of his wife, Ethel Constance White, would be presided over by Justice James McFarlane. Mr Gurner appeared again for the Crown with Assistant Crown Prosecutor this time, a Mr C.H. Book. Mr Maxwell again represented Ronald Griggs, assisted by young barrister John Cullity. This time the Crown and the defence agreed that Lottie Condon would testify, but only about her phone conversation with Ronald, and she'd be sworn in after the defence rested. The same witnesses were called for the prosecution, gave the same evidence, and were subjected to the same cross-examination. Ronald Griggs testified on the third day of the trial, and he told his story again. But this time, his own junior counsel, Mr Cullity, asked him a question the Crown had not. Quote, did either you or your wife take milk in your tea ever since you were married? Ronald said, no. Mr. Cullity then asked, quote, On occasions that your mother was there, for example, did you take it then? Ronald said, he did. Mr. Cullity asked, On occasions that your mother was there, for example, did you take it then? Ronald said, he did. Mr. Cullity asked, But apart from these occasions, when you and your wife were at the parsonage, you never took milk at all? No. Mr. Cullity asked if there was milk in the house when Ethel got back, and Ronald said he had bought some Nestle condensed milk for the baby, which by then had been weaned. Mr. Cullity probed, On the last trial, you never suggested that you and your wife did not take milk and tea, did you? Ronald replied, I was never asked that question. As we've heard, arsenic in tea with milk would be hard to detect, but that wasn't what had happened because Ethel took her tea black, as he did. Mr. Cullity asked other questions to ease suspicions the jury might have had about another part of Ronald's story. This was his familiarity, or otherwise, with arsenic. He asked Ronald whether the Griggs family used arsenic on the orchard in Tasmania. Ronald said they used arsenate of lead. Mr. Cullity asked, is that not a form of arsenic? Ronald said, 
he didn't know. Yet, hadn't Lottie in her statement said he'd studied chemistry? To this, Ronald said he'd talked to her in passing about the piece of gold-bearing quartz, and she'd asked if he knew anything about extracting it. Ronald recollected telling her, quote, No, I do not, but I would like to know something about chemistry. It seems an interesting subject. To Mr. Cullity and to this new jury, Ronald explained what he'd been thinking when Ethel got back from Tasmania. He said he still respected her and had affection for her as a friend, but he did not want to live with her again. Ronald wanted to marry Lottie, though he was prepared to wait for the divorce on grounds of desertion that he believed would come about after he and Ethel had been separated for three years. But Ronald testified that he'd known his life as a minister would be finished sooner than that. Why? Ronald was up for a new posting in April 1928. He couldn't go without Ethel, yet neither could he live with her any longer. This was meant to counter the Crown's contention that he'd murdered his wife because he couldn't get a divorce, remain a minister and marry Lottie. Regarding Ethel's supposed suicidal inclinations, Ronald told this court he thought at the time his wife's fireplace suicide attempt might have been due to the mental strain of her being heavily pregnant. He claimed that from that moment until Alwyn was born, he never left Ethel alone as a guard against her making a further attempt. Though the Crown let this go, it was also patently untrue. Most Sundays, Ronald was away all day on legitimate church business. Further, in Lottie's statement, which he admitted was true, they'd slept together when he stayed at the Condon homestead just a few days before Ethel gave birth. Ronald said he'd known there were rumours about him and Lottie, but it had never entered his mind that this would lead people to suspect he'd had anything to do with Ethel's death. When he found out this was the case, he, at John Condon's suggestion, had written to Constable McMillan requesting an inquiry because he wanted to clear his name. Ronald said that later that day he'd intended to be truthful, but then had lied to the police, and he admitted he would have kept doing so if Lottie hadn't made her confession. As he had in the first trial, Ronald Griggs came across as a calm, confident and credible witness. But his testimony had also raised the issue of whether Ethel had taken her tea with milk. Junior prosecutor Mr. Book recalled Ethel's mother to the stand to ask her, quote, Mrs. White, are you able to say whether or not your daughter took milk in her tea? Mrs. White was adamant. She always took milk in her tea. I have never known her to drink tea without milk. Mrs. White said she took her tea this way before her marriage and when she'd been in Tasmania before her death. Mr. Maxwell's cross-examination elicited from Mrs. White that she'd never been in Omeo to see how Ethel took her tea there. Mr. Book recalled Annie Mitchell to the stand. He asked, Did Mrs. Griggs, the deceased, ever take tea at your house? Mrs. Mitchell said, Yes. On more than one occasion? Yes. Did she take milk in her tea? Yes. On cross-examination, Mr. Maxwell elicited that Mrs. Mitchell had never had tea in the parsonage. He also tried to insinuate that detectives had suggested her answers to her. Lynn Fleming, that stewardess who'd looked after Ethel and Alwyn on the voyage over from Tasmania, was next recalled to the stand. She said she'd made tea with milk for Ethel soon after she boarded the boat for Melbourne. Mr. Maxwell's cross-examination aimed at discrediting her by saying she'd served dozens of people and it was very possible she was mistaken. 
Had Ethel Griggs been one of those tea drinkers who changed their preference depending on who they were with? Or had Ronald lied to make it seem less possible he'd dosed her drink with arsenic that would have been visible in black tea until it dissolved? Given he'd claimed Ethel had put some of her tea in a saucer for the baby, Mr. Book might have asked Mrs. White whether her daughter had ever done this while in Tasmania. Or in fact, whether any babies were known to like drinking black tea. Lottie Condon testified as arranged about the telephone conversation on the 10th of January at the Hilltop Hotel. While her appearance offered a thrill to those in court, her evidence offered nothing beyond what had already been heard. During this second trial, Mr. Gurner had tendered his resignation as Crown Prosecutor, which likely explained why he let Mr. Book give the closing argument. This junior barrister did well to dispel the jury's concerns they'd be convicting without direct evidence. Quote, Nobody is called to say, I saw Griggs poison his wife. Nearly all cases of this kind depend on circumstantial evidence. It is your duty, gentlemen, to draw a reasonable inference from the circumstances. And my submission to you is that the only reasonable inference open to you is that the accused himself administered the poisons. He shot down the notion that Francis Perry made a mistake because he was drunk. Quote, Not a tittle of evidence is brought to support the inferences. Mr. Book rubbished the idea that Ethel had killed herself. Quote, what sort of a woman was she? You have the fact that she was a virtuous, religious, exceedingly good woman, and it would take an exceedingly strong motive to bring her to commit suicide. Greggs never told his wife of his infidelity, and the evidence is that it was a close secret between him and Miss Condon. Lottie Condon's name was not mentioned in the letters between Griggs and his wife. If she intended to do away with herself, do you not think she would have done it in Tasmania, where there were her parents to look after the baby? Would she have come back to leave that baby with her unfaithful husband and Lottie Condon? Mr. Maxwell delivered another two-hour speech that hit on the same points he'd hammered throughout his defence of Ronald Griggs. The Crown had simply failed to provide any evidence the accused was guilty of murdering his wife. Justice McFarlane took his time balancing the arguments in his summing up, beginning on Friday morning and not finishing until after the lunch break. Before the jury retired, Mr. Maxwell asked that he be allowed to emphasise two points the judge had not given enough weight to. These were that if Ronald knew about arsenic, as the Crown contended, it was very unlikely he would have dosed her as soon as she walked through the door of the parsonage because there was a chance she would have died within hours, which would have looked incredibly suspicious. The other point Mr. Maxwell raised was that if he'd given her a big initial dose, more than enough to kill her, why would Ronald have given her a second dose just hours before she died? Junior prosecutor Mr. Book wanted the final say, however, and he used it to reiterate that Mr. Maxwell's argument Ronald had acted like a decent husband by fetching the doctor was really explained by the fact that if a physician hadn't seen her before she died, there would have been an automatic post-mortem in which the poison would have been detected straight away. The jury retired at 3.30. Six hours later, that Friday night, 1,000 people crowded the street outside. Small groups of these men and women argued so loudly they could be heard inside the court building. At one point the jury complained that one group's potentially prejudicial claptrap could be heard in the jury room and a carload of police were sent to move them on. Justice McFarlane resumed his seat at 9.30. Right down to the timing, late on Friday night, this was looking like a replay of the sale trial. 
His Honour told counsel that he proposed to adjourn until morning so the jury could continue deliberations with fresher minds. When the judge's associate went to convey this, he came back with good news. The jury members said they just needed a few more minutes. At 10 minutes to 10, Ronald Griggs returned to the dock as the jury filed in. The foreman stood. Justice McFarlane asked if the jury had reached a decision. They had. On the charge that Ronald Jeeves Griggs had willfully murdered Ethel Constance Griggs, the accused was not guilty. Ronald's face twitched and he grabbed the rail of the dock. An astonished gasp went around the court and there was a low moaning from the accused's faithful supporter, Reverend Nucky, as he collapsed in a brief faint. Ronald shook hands with his solicitor, Mr. Wise, and junior counsel, Mr. Cullity, but he reportedly didn't speak to Mr. Maxwell, who left the court escorted by his son. Was this just happenstance, or did it reflect exactly what George Maxwell told juries? Acquitting wasn't the same as finding a man to be innocent. Waiting in an anteroom, Lottie Condon and her father John were told the verdict and they made a quick, unobserved exit from the court. Ronald Griggs's mother, who'd been in the courthouse but not in the public gallery, wept as she left with Ronald's sister. The other mother, Mrs Annie White, had been in court and she broke down. Supported by her daughter Edna and a friend, Mrs White walked out in tears, saying it had been a cruel verdict. After retrieving his hat, coat and suitcase, Ronald and Reverend Nucky left court and jumped into a taxi that the police had arranged. An officer stood on the running board to ensure the car wasn't interfered with by the crowd who might not have agreed with the verdict. But the vehicle passed without incident. The constable stood down at Little Burke Street and Ronald sped off into the night. He was to later write that he got the driver to take him to the countryside, where, for a long, long time, he stood beneath the stars that he hadn't gazed upon for months. Ronald Griggs had been found not guilty and his liberty had been restored to him. But was that the same as really being free? After all, Ronald's name, face and his sins were known all over Australia. Speculation was rife following Ronald's acquittal. Where was he? Would he and Lottie Condon get married now? It had later emerged that Reverend Nucky had arranged for Ronald to stay with a family in Werribee. But Australia's most notorious man didn't keep his head down because he found he didn't have to. Ronald was amazed that, without disguising his appearance, he could catch a bus into the city a few times a week and not be recognised. The Sunday after his acquittal, Truth newspapers reported that John Condon had said that Lottie would never again see Ronald if he could help it. But Ronald had other ideas. He wrote to John saying he was coming to Tongio Gap, purportedly to collect his motorbike and other possessions. Upon receiving the letter, John hired a driver to take Ronald's belongings to Brothen Railway Station. Then John got in his car and drove south. John parked at Lindenau, the station 25 miles before Brothen, and he waited. When the train arrived, he found Ronald Griggs. According to Truth, he had this to say, I won't have you at my house. Nobody wants you, and there's no reason for you to go there. Your things are all at Brothen. If you take my advice, you will stay at Brothen tonight and return to Melbourne tomorrow. Ronald Griggs had been stopped in his tracks. He remained at Brothen overnight and sold his motorbike and sidecar to a railway porter for £35. 
The rest of his belongings, a bicycle, some garden tools and other odds and ends, raised another £12 or so. Tail between his legs, Ronald retreated to Melbourne and vanished once again. While he was out of sight, he wasn't out of mind, and in May and June, newspapers reported rumours. One said he'd married Lottie and they were living a few miles out of Hamilton, near Geelong. Another reckoned the lovebirds had holed up in a cottage in the Melbourne seaside suburb of Black Rock. But the truth was far stranger. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In early June, a man named Graham Maxwell presented himself to Presbyterian Church elders in Adelaide. He told them he'd gone to Melbourne University and studied theology and produced a matriculation document from the institution. The elders were impressed and they appointed Graham Maxwell to be a probationary minister for three months at the little church in the suburb of Colonel Light Gardens. The pay was a shade under £15 per month and during his downtime, the impressive young Mr Maxwell would train to become an ordained minister. The Presbyterian Banner newsletter reported the newcomer had, quote, made a good beginning. Graham Maxwell's first sermon in mid-June was about how God had given unto mankind the passions needed to perpetuate the species, along with the divine reason that was required to rule them. One churchgoer was so impressed he claimed to have remembered the sermon pretty much word for word. Minister Graham Maxwell had said, Life is no longer mere animalism, content to gorge itself with roots and raw meat and sit in the sun. The ear craves melody, the eye beauty, the brain dominion, while the soul mounts to the very stars. These were poetic, life-affirming and soul-stirring words. The church's small congregation grew because people wanted to hear the new preacher, and he was especially popular with children at Sunday school. Graham Maxwell gave inspiring sermons about the love of Christ and how ceaseless prayer could get us into the inner circle of heaven. On the 8th of July 1928, he told his congregation that to get to the holy place, they needed to have hands clean of sin, like that washerwoman in the parable who'd been let through the pearly gates while a hypocritical bishop and a hypocritical policeman had been turned away. Graham Maxwell had been preaching for a month now, and he was settling in. He had a place to live near the church, and he was a welcome guest in the homes of members of the congregation. Over in Melbourne, Graham Maxwell's paperwork was being processed by the stationing committee of the Presbyterian Church in Victoria, which looked after such matters for the southern states of Australia. There, a Reverend Carl Foster, convener of the college committee, noticed that Mr Maxwell's matriculation certificate had, well, certain irregularities. It seemed that the name had been changed. The student number, 1268, appeared to have been changed also from the original 12686. Puzzled, Reverend Foster took the document to Melbourne University. The registrar looked up that student number, 12686, and it belonged to Ronald Jeeves Griggs. 
We can only imagine Reverend Foster's disbelief and the red faces when he immediately contacted Adelaide's elders. There was no committee meeting this time, the church terminating Ronald's service, though his sudden departure was explained to the congregation as Graham Maxwell having to return home interstate on urgent domestic business. The Presbyterian elders hoped they could keep this quiet. So did Ronald Griggs. But they should both have known better. From the 20th of July, his Adelaide escapade put Ronald back on front pages around Australia. Smith's Weekly couldn't keep an admiring tone from its coverage of a, quote, exploit more audacious than anything that the ordinary imagination could have conjured up. How Ronald had ended up preaching in Adelaide went like this. As we heard in part one, Ronald, in France, had befriended a fellow digger named A.R. Stevens. In the years since, the two men had regularly exchanged letters. Mr. Stevens had last written to Ronald after he was arrested, but he hadn't received a reply. After Ronald was acquitted, while living with that family in Werribee, he put pen to paper and got in touch with his old friend. Writing back, Mr. Stevens said Ronald should come to stay with him and his family in Adelaide. It'd give him the chance to rest and to start over. So that's what Ronald did, calling himself Graham Maxwell, which appeared to be some sort of bizarre homage to the blind barrister George Maxwell, who'd recently saved his skin. A.R. Stevens was a milkman working around the Adelaide suburb of Woodville. Most mornings, Ronald would accompany him on his rounds. Mr. Stevens, who'd tell the newspapers he'd merely been helping out an old digger mate, said that some of his customers recognised this Graham Maxwell but they didn't let on to Ronald that they knew who he was, though they privately congratulated Mr. Stevens for offering the man a second chance. Ronald, Mr. Stevens said, had been great company, and he'd endeared himself also to Mrs. Stevens. Troublingly, though, Ronald had indicated his desire to go back to the ministry. After a chance encounter in which he'd chatted with some Presbyterians about their home mission work, he'd been invited to talk to the elders, and before he knew it, he was again working as a preacher. Of course, it hadn't been quite as simple as that because there'd been a little bit of forgery involved too. Mr. Stevens had not approved of this deception, but he'd abetted it by keeping quiet and by driving Ronald to church on a few Sundays before he got his own place. In the wake of this exposure, Smith Weekly interviewed a woman from the Colonel Lightgardens Church. She said, quote, I've never heard anything like him. He seems to have been inspired, and listening to him only made me realise how utterly wicked we all were. It seemed that all of the congregation had a similarly high opinion of Graham Maxwell slash Ronald Griggs. All except one woman who claimed she thought he was shifty because he wouldn't make eye contact with her. Smith Weekly got a look at Ronald's forged document and they were agog that he'd pulled it off. Quote, Griggs is not a murderer. The jury has declared that, but as a forger, he is a complete dud. The imposture is so obvious that the wonder is that a man in his sense would have the hide to expect anyone to pass it by. It looked as though the erasure had been done with a toothbrush. What this new scandal also did was focus attention on Ronald's education. Back in 1924, in his letters to his family, which was subsequently reported in the local press, Ronald had claimed a brilliant academic career at Queen's College. Now that was called into question. Smith Weekly reported, quote, 
The registrar of the university, when interviewed, could not offer any opinion as to the merit of Griggs as a student, as he was not there long enough to enable anyone to form an estimate of his abilities. He went to Queen's after matriculation and stayed a few weeks only. That was the beginning and end, apparently, of his theological studies for the Methodist ministry. So, what had Ronald been doing for those two years in Melbourne? This would never be explained. Ronald Griggs' war record had been exaggerated, his academic career seemed to have been faked, his Omeo ministry had been a monument of lies, and he'd just pulled the wool over the eyes of Adelaide's Presbyterian community. Smith's Weekly wanted to know, quote, what will this man do next? A.R. Stevens told the newspapers that Ronald, since being exposed, had gone to live in Western Australia. Quote, it is his intention to enter civil life there. I do not think he will make any further attempt to re-enter the ministry. Truth in Western Australia wasn't so sure, saying the Methodist church there was on guard against any new would-be preachers with surnames like Smith or Jones. But Ronald Griggs wasn't in Western Australia. After trying and failing to get a job as a shearer on an outback station in South Australia, he headed to Sydney to sell the last thing he had to Smith's Weekly, his story. The newspaper's front page on Saturday the 4th of August 1928 blared, True as God, I never committed the crime. The bulk of this article was Ronald Griggs' signed statement telling parts of his story. But it was prefaced and followed by what was purported to be an interview with the man. And these portions of the article contained the big news that would be relayed around Australia. Ronald was going to marry Lottie Condon before the end of the year. He told the paper, quote, There is no other girl in the world for me. She is wonderful and has stuck to me like glue. We will be married when she turns 21, which will be in two or three months' time. Ronald supposedly told Smith Weekly that when he hadn't heard from Lottie after the trial, he'd written to her father and John had come down to meet him at Brothen. There, Ronald claimed, John had said, quote, So far as Lottie was concerned, she could please herself about marrying me when she became of age. If she had been 21 at the time, I would have consulted no one and would have taken the fastest car I could get to Tongio, got the girl, and we would have flown for our lives. Ronald said that he and Lottie were now writing regularly, counting down the days until they could tie the knot. Of his most recent adventure, as he called it, Ronald said he'd been inspired to try to become a preacher in Adelaide after reading the story of Willie Phillips. This was a Melbourne youth who'd confessed to murder in 1897, seen his death sentence commuted to life in prison, was later released, and then went to America to become a popular religious minister. If Willie Phillips could do this after being found guilty of murder, why couldn't Ronald do something similar after being acquitted? Smith's Weekly presented Ronald's signed narrative without comment, saying it held no brief for the man, but nor was it trying to crucify him. Readers looking for insight into Ethel's death were disappointed. The few thousand words that Ronald offered explained how he'd been called to serve God after meeting that prostitute in France just after the war. He maintained his claims about his educational achievements and detailed his early religious career before going to Omeo. Quote, The whole world now knows the story of what happened at Omeo and I have no comment to make. No one but myself can understand the period of darkness which followed. Much of the rest of the piece described his sufferings during the trials and how these had given him far greater faith in God and empathy with the persecuted. 
Ronald wrote he realized his Adelaide deception had been a mistake, but he offered no apology because it had come from a place of purity, his desire to worship and serve God. Ronald pleaded, quote, The only appeal I would make to the public now is that I be given a chance to make good. I have finished with the church, but I have not finished with life, nor with Christ's work in whatever sphere I may be placed. I feel that I can be a better man because of my experience. Not once in this long self-justification did Ronald mention Ethel even indirectly, much less express any sorrow that his valuable learning experience had come at the price of her life. Ronald wrote that in the months since he'd been acquitted, he hadn't been back to Tasmania. He said the island was too cramped for him now. He didn't say so directly because he didn't mention her at all either, but this meant that Ronald wouldn't go to Tasmania to see his baby daughter Alwyn, still being looked after by his mother and his father. Lottie Condon turned 21 on the 9th of October 1928. She didn't run to Ronald's side at the altar. Her father John had lived in Tongio Gap his whole life, but that life had been turned upside down by what had happened between Ronald and Lottie. While the scandal was unfolding, John had put the Tongio Gap property on the market, and by the end of 1928, he and his family had moved to the rock near Wagga Wagga, Lottie included. As far as we know, she never saw Ronald again. But Ronald was back in the papers in November 1928 when the people of Omeo, along with some Melbourne journalists who'd covered the case, announced they were raising a subscription to buy a tombstone and a railing for Ethel Griggs's grave. Wanting to do everything properly, the committee responsible for this project wrote to Ronald to seek his blessing to erect the monument. Ronald replied that he had to be given approval over the headstone design and the wording of the epitaph. The committee refused this demand for control and said they were looking into proceeding without Ronald's permission. Ethel Griggs's headstone never happened. Back in August 1928, Ronald's claim about marrying Lottie had included that they intended to live in Western Australia. Instead, he returned to Adelaide alone, where he went by the surname Morton and worked as a milkman. In March 1929, Smith's Weekly doorstopped him, badgering him until he confessed to being Griggs before he begged off any further comment because he had to get to the bank. In this article, Smith's Weekly reported one of its journalists had spoken to a Condon family member living in Melbourne, who said the family was up at the rock and there was never going to be a marriage between Ronald and Lottie. Quote, He is by nature a bad man, and her father, who is a wealthy man, would disinherit her if she did. She has everything she wants in the material things of life, and so far as Griggs is concerned, she has forgotten him. Forgotten? Probably not then, and not for some time, but Lottie Condon would move on. According to family records at Ancestry.com.au, Lottie changed her name to Isla and in April 1938, in Sydney, married a salesman named Alan Barry. They were to have four children, run a store on the north coast of New South Wales at Mawollumbar during the 1950s, and then retire in Sydney, where Alan passed away in 1984. Lottie Condon, who'd now been known as Isla Barry for most of her life, died on the 27th of November 2001 at the ripe old age of 94. While the story of Ronald Griggs hasn't ever been told in the detail you've heard in this miniseries, in 2009, a retired Victorian lawyer named Reg Egan published a novel called Lottie. Based on some of the sources I've also used, this is a fictionalised account of the period from the Griggs' leaving Tasmania to Ronald's arrest for Ethel's murder. 
Available on Kindle, it's a well-written, interesting read, and Reg doesn't shy away from describing what he believed really happened. What was most fascinating to me, though, was Reg's postscript, in which he detailed what he learned from Ronald and Ethel's by then elderly daughter, Alwyn. Alwyn Griggs had, as I discovered at Ancestry and from Tasmanian newspapers, lived in Franklin and married and had her own children. When Reg Egan interviewed her for his book, she revealed that while she'd grown up with the Griggses, she'd spent some holidays with her grandmother, Annie White, and the rest of her mother's people. Alwyn grew up believing that Ethel had died of blood poisoning and that her father wasn't on the scene simply because he wasn't interested in her, though he would send her a Christmas card each year. Later, when Alwyn learned the truth about her mother's death, or at least as much of the truth as can be known, she accepted it with equanimity and got on with her life. After her first child was born, Alwyn wrote to her father, but he didn't write back. She was never to meet Ronald Griggs. That Smith's weekly article back in March 1929 had revealed that Ronald had, in addition to a new career as a milkman, found himself a new girlfriend. The paper didn't reveal her identity, but on Boxing Day 1932, Ronald married Lilla May Morgan, a woman four years his senior. According to Reg Egan, their marriage certificate claimed that it was Ronald's first marriage. In his postscript to Lottie, he also mentions that one of Ronald's brothers visited him in 1959 and reported he was living the simple life of a married man who was a bit of a loner. Ronald and Lilla weren't to have any children. It's not clear whether he lived under his own name or what he did for work, but we do know that Ronald and Lilla lived in Basket Range in the Adelaide Hills. It was here on the 23rd of February 1976 that Ronald Jeeves Griggs died at the age of 76, having been married to Lilla for nearly 45 years. She passed away in 1982. They're interred side by side under the name Griggs, the simple plaque reading, Now at Rest. So, did Ronald Griggs murder his wife? It's difficult to see how that wasn't what happened. Ronald was wildly infatuated with Lottie and deeply enamoured with being a Methodist minister. The only way to have his lover and keep his job was for his wife to die. By Ronald's account, Lottie had said to him that she'd have to go away when Ethel returned. And he wasn't going to have that, especially as for the last three months of 1927, they'd had each other all to themselves. With Ethel back, that would be over. On the 27th of December, when Ronald learned that Ethel was about to leave Tasmania, it was too late to stop her. Yes, he could have sent her a telegram, but what would he say and what would she tell her family? As for when and where he got the arsenic, the Condon's property seems the most likely place, and it wouldn't have been difficult for him to take a teaspoon or two without John Condon being any the wiser. One of the arguments made by Ronald's defence was that he wouldn't have given Ethel the arsenic the moment she walked into the parsonage because there was a chance she would have died within hours and that would have looked incredibly suspicious. But the alternative was for Ethel to be welcomed back into the community and for her to learn from Omeo gossip just what her husband had been doing in her absence. Even if the townspeople had kept quiet out of compassion, if it had gotten out that Ethel was back and had then taken ill a few days or weeks later, she likely would have had visitors in the parsonage and been attended by her regular doctor, Alexander Langdon, to whom she might have confided her latest fears and anxieties about her husband's conduct. The defence had also repeatedly contended that once Ethel became sick, Ronald had acted not like a murderer, but as a concerned husband. Yet for nearly 48 hours, he didn't fetch a doctor, 
or even tell anyone that Ethel was back and that she was sick, except of course for his young lover. During this time, Ronald had ample opportunity to give Ethel arsenic. And as the prosecution contended, if he hadn't called the doctor before Ethel died, an inquest would have been carried out and the real cause of death quickly established. Put like this and taken with his other lies, it's hard to believe that Ronald didn't do it. Hard, but not impossible. Ethel could have got her hands on arsenic in Tasmania or in Melbourne. She could have decided to take it to make herself sick and win her husband's sympathy. Or she could have taken it on the spur of the moment in secret to kill herself after an argument with Ronald that he then later didn't reveal for fear it'd make him seem even guiltier. Would Ethel have revealed either of these things to Mrs. Mitchell? Perhaps not. That afternoon in the paddock, she hadn't said a word to her about the incident in Mr. Mitchell's store. Maybe, as Dr. Mollison admitted was possible, if improbable, the big dose of arsenic Ethel had taken had been digested in such a way that some of it had made it to the large intestine, while a similar amount was still in her stomach at her time of death. Then, of course, there was Ethel's presentiment, as described by her mother, in which before leaving Tasmania, she'd asked Mrs. White to look after baby Owen should anything happen to her. Was this less of a presentiment and more an indication that Ethel intended to commit suicide? As for Ronald's motive, even in the grip of an intense infatuation, would he really have resorted to murdering Ethel? Yes, he had exaggerated his war service, and yes, he had been unfaithful to his wife while in a position of moral authority, but neither made a man a cold-blooded killer. There are other possibilities. Francis Perry might have mixed up his powders, discovered his mistake soon enough that no one else died, and then covered it up because he didn't want to be convicted of Ethel Griggs's manslaughter. Remoter still, but still possible, Ethel's food or drink might have been spiked by some random maniac in Melbourne or even just before she left Tasmania. Were all of these possibilities enough for reasonable doubt? The answer was yes, at least for a jury in 1928 who feared they might be condemning an innocent man to death. But if they'd thought that Ronald Griggs would spend his life behind bars rather than go to the gallows, those 12 men, good and true, might very well have convicted. In the end, the Omeo mystery remains just that. And on the 23rd of February 1976, when he drew his last breath, only Ronald Griggs knew whether his hands were clean or dirty as he went to stand in the holy place. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Thanks for coming with me on this deep dive. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if anyone knows anything more about this story, in particular Ronald and Lottie's later lives, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. If you've become a supporter of Forgotten Australia during this miniseries, you'll hear your shout-out in the next regular episode. In the meantime, if you want more scandal, the latest bonus episode is about the divorce case that ruined one of Australia's most famous detectives. It's called Detective Sergeant McRae versus The Lady in Grey. And despite happening more than 80 years ago, it really resonates in the hashtag MeToo era. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting the show. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. 
Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.